this is The Crime Cafe, your podcasting source of great crime, suspense, and thriller writing. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I bring on my guest, I'll just remind you that The Crime Cafe has two ebooks for sale the nine book box set and the short story anthology. You can find the buy links for both on my website, debbiemack.com. D E B B I M A C K. Dot com under the Crime Cafe link. You can also get a free copy of either book if you become a Patreon supporter. You'll get that and much more if you support the podcast on Patreon, along with our eternal gratitude for doing so. I'm happy to say that the podcast is sponsored this month by Blueberry Podcasting. If you either have a podcast or want to start one, I use them and I highly recommend them. Blueberry podcasting makes my job much easier. For one thing, I have a WordPress website, and Blueberry only requires you use their PowerPress plugin to work. But you don't have to be a WordPress user to launch a podcast with Blueberry podcasting, so there is flexibility. The best part is you don't have to be a technical genius to use Blueberry podcasting. But if you run into trouble, Blueberry Podcasting has five-day phone support and seven-day email support. I love that. So get 30 days of Blueberry Podcasting free. This includes hosting and stats and a WordPress site if you need one. Publishing is as simple as create, upload, publish. Just use the alphanumeric promo code BLU011 to get started today. Hi, everyone. Today's guest is an award-winning New York Times bestselling author of numerous books in a wide variety of genres, including true crime. He is also a historian, which I think is way cool. It's my great pleasure to introduce Blaine Pardo. Hi, Blaine. Thanks for having me on. Sure thing. I'm glad you could be here. And um, let's see, you've had a really interesting career. I don't get to talk to many crime authors who are also nonfiction historian writers. So how did you get into that? I actually, you know, I tend to write the things I like to read. So uh, from my youth, I've been reading true crime and I've been reading military history. And uh, when I became a writer, I was writing primarily science fiction and told my agent I wanted to get into writing some military history and he was like that's crazy you don't go that direction and I said well I do and uh, so I started going into that and I wrote a number of military history books really enjoyed doing that and uh, you know then I decided well you know what I always like true crime I'll go branch into that I found that really the amount of research, there's a difference as to where you go to get the information, but the actual research methodologies are pretty similar between writing a historical nonfiction and writing true crime. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, is it more difficult? You, You said you have a preference for cold cases and older cases. Is it more difficult to write about recent or ongoing cases? Yeah, I you know the the problem is the wounds are all pretty new and you know 
I, I'd love to do some current cases, uh, especially some of them that are out there now are absolutely fascinating. Uh, the problem is, you know, it, it's so new and it's so fresh and still so painful for the victims, families, et cetera, to deal with it. it. It's very hard for people to be objective in what they're saying. It's a lot easier with a cold case that might go back to the 1960s, 70s, or 80s to go back to an older cold case. You're able to really get some objectivity. Now, people's memories are worse but they're able to talk about it a lot more because they've talked about it so many times. Uh, and, and I found that's been easier for us to, to get, you know, in terms of interviewing people to be able to get them to open up about it. Mm -hmm. I would think they would have more perspective on it at that point. I, and sometimes. Uh-huh. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's also the aspect of police wanting to conduct an investigation without giving out too much information, I would assume. Well, you know, when you're dealing with cold cases, um, it always helps to have law enforcement on your side and say, yes, that'd be a help. But um, we have, they're persistent, aren't they? <laughs> the, uh, yeah, we've had situations where we've been able to um, work with law enforcement and open up the case files and go from there. We've also had cases where law enforcement said we will not cooperate. Mm -hmm. And yeah. those are harder to do. That's frustrating. And you kind of pound your head a lot on those. But, uh, you know, there's ways around that. And uh, I find a lot of former investigators and they're more than willing to talk about it. When a case, you know, we just did a book on the Freeway Phantom, which was a serial killing spree in Washington, D.C. in the 1970s. And the police are still going, it's an active investigation. We're following all leads. Well, look, it's 48 years old. If you haven't solved it, you're not going to at this point. Or, or at best, you're going to find that the perpetrators dead you know but they still won't open the case files for us hmm. uh, but we found some former investigators who were able to share they kept copies of things and that was helpful for us and they were more than willing to share them well that's good um now both uh this book and the one a special kind of evil which you're giving away were um, collaborations with your daughter, correct? Yes, yes. I've done a number of books with my daughter. Uh-huh. Uh, so when did you start collaborating? Um, it was a few years ago. I, I got approached by a law enforcement officer about a cold case in my hometown. Uh, I had just written a book on a cold case in my hometown in Michigan. Um, and it was on the murder of Maggie Hume. And my daughter's always been a true crime fan and she loves to write. And I thought, well, what the heck? You know, we've never, I've never written with someone collaboratively. And I knew her writing style was pretty close to mine. So I, I called her up and said, you know, are you interested in doing this? And she was all over it. So we traveled up to Michigan on many trips, did the research, split the book up, you know, edited each other's work, uh, really kind of dove into it. 
and it, it's actually been kind of a fun, I wouldn't say father-daughter experience as much as it's just been fun writing with someone who's so much younger, whose perspective is so much different than, than an old fart like me. You know, I look <laughs> at things a certain way and, and she, she offers kind of a different perspective and that's very useful. That's fantastic, actually. It sounds wonderful. So it sounds like you guys are collaborate well together. <laughs> we do. We, you know, it's a little weird to, you know, I would tell people I used to work with that, you know, I'm taking my daughter out to some murder scenes this weekend, you know, and you always kind of get kind of a weird look from people anyway, but yeah. You know, How touching. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, what kind of a father are you? But uh, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it, we actually had a good time with a lot of it and it's a time for us to talk. And I think my wife enjoys it from a perspective of she doesn't like hearing about some of these cases and how gruesome they are. My daughter's a nurse, so it's not a big deal if we start talking about, well, did you see this in the autopsy photo? And, oh my God, I couldn't believe they put their hands there and, you know, things along those lines you look at it now, you know, my wife kind of cringed at it, but my daughter gets into it. So it makes it a little bit easier to work. Mm -hmm. Yes, I can imagine. Um, your blog post was about the Kevin Bacon murder. Uh, you, um, can you tell us a little bit more about that case and how you got involved with writing about it? Well, it's really interesting. My son uh, lives in Michigan, where, which is where I'm, I was raised. I was born in Virginia, but raised there. And he was down for the holidays and started talking about somebody who had gone missing at that point on Christmas. And he said, it's kind of interesting. He said, this guy was going to come and shadow me at my salon. My son owns a hair salon, uh, aesthetic hair company, he owns it in uh, Ferndale, Michigan. He said, this guy was going to come and shadow us for a day, you know, kind of sit in our salon, watch us work, and he's gone missing. And over the holiday, he ended up, uh, they started finding his car with all the, his phone and wallet and clothing in the car. And it's in Michigan in the winter. You, you really know things are not going well for whoever the victim was. And in this case, it was Kevin Bacon. Um, and, you know, we kind of followed it and it really impacted my son a great deal because it was his first time somebody he knew or had any sort of association with, you know, was involved in such a crime. And as more and more facts have, are coming out, I was just reading a news report today about it, that the, they've apprehended the man who's done it, and he's planning on pleading guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, but mm -hmm. he literally kidnapped Kevin Bacon, took him to his house, uh, cut his throat, strung him up in the rafters and uh, was cannibalizing his body. Um, and it, it's absolutely stunning. So you never know where the next lead or tip comes in. And I think what's really interesting about this case is I didn't know a lot about the dating scene on online dating. I'm, I'm 57 years old. I used to meet people by meeting people. Uh, <laughs> You know, the old fashioned way we go to a bar or something. But, uh, you know, the whole uh, scene with Grindr and how, you know, gay men and, and gay people use these applications and straight people as well to, to meet people and some of the risks that are involved with that. 
and where you meet the people, where you go, things on those lines. And my son's been able to explain quite a bit of it to me. And it, it's, it's worth noting. It's, you know, it, there's a cautionary tale in there as well. Um, you know, and unfortunately, I feel like the victim is being a little bit overlooked almost in this because of the grisly nature of the crime itself. The focus has completely gone to the killer, hmm. not to the victim. And, and we see that with all these cases as they unfold, you know, especially something as horrific as this. It tends to shift the focus. And so I'm watching this case carefully because it, while it's garnered some national media coverage, it hasn't gotten a lot of what I would call mainstream coverage that and I'm, I think it will be one of those cases that does. Mm -hmm. Well, it's very interesting. Um, now, the book you're giving away is A Special Kind of Evil. What's the subject of that book? Well, that's around about the Colonial Parkway murders that are a series of cold cases here in Virginia. Uh, they took place on the Colonial Parkway, which is, stretches between Colonial Williamsburg and Jamestown and Yorktown. It's a stretch of road. It's a very narrow national park. And the killer in the 1980s operated in there in that area um, and struck always killing a pair of victims. Um, and the killer struck four times. Uh, and two of the victims still haven't been located. And my daughter and I spent around a year and a half, two years doing research uh, for this book, interviewing the victims' families, uh, as well as law enforcement to really kind of crawl into this case. It's still a very active case. Uh, just last week, I, I had some contact, or a couple of weeks ago, I had some contact with our the FBI agent who's on the case, who was asking me some questions of things we've come across or things we had experience with, you know, on this. So it's, you know, I think what's happened with a lot of these cold cases, especially these serial murder cases, the apprehension of the Golden State Killer has revitalized an interest with cold serial cases. And uh, I think law enforcement's taking a new and, and more penetrating perspective on so do you think uh, true crime writing helps to spur interest on the part of the police? Or? Yeah, I'll never get the police to admit that, but <laughs> yeah. yes, um, I, I do think it does help. Um, you know, it, it, it keeps it in the public attention. And I think what happens with a lot of these cases is, especially as detectives retire and move on and cases get shuffled around and they become frigid cold, they don't get the attention that they should. And because they don't get that level of attention, when a book comes out about it, it changes the entire nature of that. Um, and, and it makes it a very public thing again, and they're forced to respond to that in some way, shape, or form. And, you know, from that perspective, I think uh, writing about the true, true crime cold cases really does kind of give a shot to, to, you know, law enforcement and, and prods them along into, you know, looking at these cases, responding to the press, because the press, when they talk about the book, they inevitably reach out to the police for a comment. And you know, every time they get a call, it 
pushes them a little bit further. So I, I think it's a very positive thing. Yes, I'm going to tend to agree with that. Um, you're really serving a public interest there. Um, are you still writing any of your other types of books? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I've got... You have I, so many interests. <laughs> I'm doing a lot uh, with uh, Battletech, which is a science fiction series right now, and I've got a, a number of novels and novellas I have to do in the next year or so that have to get done and uh, so I'm, I'm actively working on those i was working on them this afternoon so it's great fun to, to do that and my daughter and i are looking at two uh, true crime cases uh, one is a cold case uh, the other one is just a very different case and it involved a, a deathbed confession and we always hear about things like deathbed confessions but there's darn few of them hmm. And this one caught my attention years ago and we got a copy of the case files and I've got a binder four and a half inches thick that I'm kind of wading through trying to make heads or tails of, you know, a uh, six, 60 year old cold case. But uh, it, it's real interesting to read through it and to piece together whether this confession was really tangible or not. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, what's the general ratio of research time to writing time on these books? <laughs> if there is one. <laughs> I always tell people I would make more money if I worked per hour at McDonald's. Um, <laughs> Just kind of, you know, how much uh, yeah. time do you put into the research? I would say it's three or four hours of research for every hour that you're actually writing. That sounds um, about right for this, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and I will say in some cases, it can be significantly more. And there's a lot of research that goes to dead ends where you, you go, okay, I'm going to go look for this information. You may spend six or seven hours looking for it and not get it. Um, I live outside Washington, D.C., so I've got access to Library of Congress. I've got access to the National Archives. Yeah, but you can go spend a day there looking for something that might end up being two sentences in a book or nothing at all. Um, and yeah, it, it can be frustrating, but I, I think a lot of it is I enjoy the, I think if you're going to write true crime, you're going to enjoy the research as much as you enjoy the writing. If you dread the research, you're, you're never going to get the writing done. You know, uh, it's all about the research. Absolutely. I mean, you have to be a good journalist, basically, and get the facts right. So. You do. And it's very hard. We started a podcast recently on our last book on the Freeway Fam cases, because when you write the book, you present strictly the facts. You can't talk about what do you think about it. And with a podcast, you can go, okay, well, this is the facts, and here's what we think about it. And mm -hmm. it's a little bit different. What's the name of your podcast? Uh, we called it Tantamount, same title as the book. And it, it's been a lot of fun. We're about halfway through doing our episodes on it. <laughs> That's become a writing experience all on its own, as I'm sure you're aware. Oh, yeah. It's focused specifically on the, the book Tantamount? Uh, that's going to be the first season. Ah, Okay. <laughs> Wow. Uh, we're going to have some fun. It, it, Victoria and I have enjoyed doing it. Um, she makes sure I delete all the outtakes between us <laughs> 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 having, 
as we as we do these things. But it's a lot of fun to actually read through that. Um, Make sure you keep those because they're a great behind the scenes looks. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sure reels. they are. I'm you sure have extras are. in there, blooper reels. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, and I don't. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned journalism around this because I never thought of it much as journalism. But more and more, it's come up where people are like, oh, you're an investigative journalist. I'm like, well, no, I'm, I'm writing a book. But you really are an investigative journalist. And, and it does change your perspective on how some other journalists operate and, and do their thing. You become much more critical, I found. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there an author or authors who you find particularly inspiring? That's that is a great question. Obviously, I enjoyed Ann Rule's work. Um, you know, Ann really set the bar for a lot of us. Um, Truman Capote did a wonderful job with In Cold Blood. And, you know, there's a mechanic there that he employed that I, you know, I'd love to be able to kind of capture at some point where you don't really tell what the crime is and what went down until the end of the book. You know, he baited you through the whole book on that. And I think that was fascinating. Um, and I, for me, some of my earlier books uh, that I enjoyed, whereas I read The Michigan Murders and Helter Skelter. And it's, you know, after all these years, I still flip through Helter Skelter and it's really hard to top Vince Bugliosi's work, you know, in terms of the the crispness of detail and and taking a very complex story with tons of characters, all very diverse, capturing all the elements and making it readable was I I to me that's a, just an excellent book to read. Period. If you write nonfiction, because um, that's how he did that and how he organized it and made it palatable, not just for the reader, but for a jury is incredible. Well, that's amazing. It's amazing the, the writers who are out there writing about this stuff and making it almost like fiction, even though it's real. Oh yeah, oh definitely. <laughs> Truth really is stranger than fiction and sometimes way more interesting. <laughs> Well, you know, if I had told you I was writing, I was looking into doing a fiction book about a young gay man who went on a grinder date and was kidnapped and strung up and cannibalized, I, I don't think publishers would even go, I don't want to read a book about that if it's fiction. If you turn around and say, by the way, all of that is true, true. Yes. bingo, they're all over it. And, exactly. and it's interesting how that works. Mm-hmm. You know, there's definitely a psychology there that, that's yeah. quite fascinating. Um, where can people find you and your books online? Uh, you know, I always tell people, go to your local bookstore. You can order all of our books, uh, you know, locally. Um, God, the local bookstores are getting harder to find, though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Amazon.com carries everything that I do. I have a blog on WordPress, Blame Pardo. Uh, at wordpress.wordpress.com. Uh, You're welcome to follow me there because I post up stuff all the time. Um, and I, I, to me, that's a great place to do it. And obviously our podcast, um, Tantamount, is out there. And I recommend 
it's worth listening to if you don't want to buy the book. It's the short version, although it's going to be like 11 or 12 episodes. I don't think that's that short, but uh, we're not reading from the book. We're telling you stuff that in some cases wasn't in the book, and it's kind of fun to hear some of that. So there's a lot of places to find me. <laughs> well, that sounds fantastic. Your uh, true crime podcast there. Um, lots of information people can pick up there. So is there anything else that you'd like to add that I haven't asked you about? No, no, I, I've enjoyed this. I, it's, I really appreciate the offer to come on and talk. Um, I think it's, you know, true crime has finally hit its stride. It, yeah, I can remember even five years ago when you told somebody you wrote true crime, they kind of looked at you a little bit strange, you know, and they were like, what's that? What is it? I'm not sure I've heard of it. Now, when I, I go to a social event, they say, well, what kind of books you write? And I say science fiction. They don't care. You know, I tell them, mm -hmm. well, I write true crime. Oh, true crime. I watch ID Discovery. I watch Netflix. I watch, uh, you know, I've seen all this stuff and, and you get pulled into conversations that are fantastic. And it's, it's good that it's become a little bit mainstream. It's good that people are comfortable talking about this. It was always a dirty little obsession I think people had. And they didn't tell people that they enjoyed it. Now it's become socially acceptable. And it, I think that's great. I think it's good for our genre. And I think it's good for uh, for readers. It's definitely good for writers. Uh, you know, it, it, I've got publishers who are like, we don't, you, you tell us what you're working on. We'll pick that up. And so it makes it so we get to be a little more selective and have to be more selective in what we look at. Well, that's fantastic. That's a good position to be in. Oh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I want to thank you again for being here today, Blaine. It was a pleasure talking to you. Oh, it's great talking to you, too. It's always good talking to somebody who's in the business. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, I would like to remind everyone that the Crime Cafe nine book set and short story anthology are available for sale from all major online retailers. You can find the links on my website, debbiemack.com. You can also get a free copy of each book when you support the podcast on Patreon, along with other perks like early access to the podcast and advanced looks at my latest fiction, what I'm working on now. So please leave a review for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. And thanks for joining us. I'll see you in two weeks when our guest will be Bill Duncan. In the meantime, happy reading, everyone.